This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Good morning, Equalizer Extra subscribers. It's time for another episode of the Equalizer Podcast. Episode 51 of the Equalizer podcast. That's right. Our little podcast is now pretty much over the hill, I guess. Uh, with I'm Chelsea Bush. With me today is Claire Watkins and John Halloran. And we're here to talk about anything woeso that comes up. And it's funny because some weeks as we're preparing, preparing for this podcast, we say, oh my gosh, what are we, what are we going to talk about? And inevitably, even if there's not even a game, something comes up. Um, so this week we've got a couple of things. Uh, let's start with the good, and that is VAR will officially be used at the Women's World Cup, which I think um, everyone expected and, and wanted to to be on, you know, treated on par with the men's side. But this is also something kind of new um, for, I would say, most if not all women's teams. Uh, no, no league, women's league that I know of uses it regularly. I, I could definitely be wrong on that. Um, so, John, Claire, any any thoughts on what we can look forward to in a couple months in France? I'm glad they're using it. It's, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I think it's interesting just because um, how long how long has the men's game had VAR? Like two years, three years, something like that. Some, something like that. Yeah, and it's getting it's not completely widespread. Yet, right. So some some it. leagues have it, and some leagues don't. And um, I, I think it's interesting that uh, and and kind of ironic that I'm I'm very happy that the women are going to have it, but it seems like over time the conversation about VAR um, has gotten more more nuanced, and there are definitely um, some valid critiques maybe at this moment of just the concept and the usage of VAR than there maybe weren't when it first was implemented. Um, so I'm anticipating there's going to be some VAR controversy um, this summer. And people are going to be talking, I think, again, about the merits of, of using it all together. But in that respect, like, I'm glad there should be VAR controversy in this World Cup. There should be. That's just part of the game. And that should be part of the women's game as well. Um, and especially when I know that there's always a little bit of hand wringing about the officiating specifically in the women's game and having that added element to it is is great. And and I, I think someone someone said this, and I, I forget who it was, just that they should have it simply because the men did. Like, that's the precedent. You know, you can argue about the value of using it at all, but that's why they should. Yeah, and that's kind of my stance on it, is like, I, personally, you know, it, I don't think it's a terrible thing. I think it kind of slows the game down, and that's one thing I absolutely love about soccer is that it's a quick game it's not like like American football that just drags on for like 20 years and you've suddenly grown gray hair like waiting for the last two minutes of the fourth quarter um but 
you know, overall, I think it's it's fairly accurate. But most at the end of the day, like you said, the men use it, the women should have it. It, it shouldn't have been this big to do about it. Like it should have just been. Well, obviously, we're going to have VAR at the Women's World Cup, and I I wish that had been the stance. I wish it didn't have to be this big deal, but at least it's here, right? Yeah, and yeah. oh, go ahead, John. I was just going to say, I don't disagree with anything that you guys are saying, but just to add to the value part that you were mentioning, Claire, is that, you know, as somebody who watched a fair amount of the 2018 World Cup, I liked how many times they got it right because they went back and reviewed it. Like, these are huge. Soccer is one of those games which one call, one goal is the difference. Um, and so I, I enjoyed how many things they were able to get correct because they were able to take a second. And again, I didn't think it was a huge disruption. Go back, take one more look at it, make a decision and then get the call right. Yeah. And it's my understanding of the studies, you know, they've gone back and reviewed calls, you know, well after the game is that VAR is actually fairly accurate. Um, so, so that's good. Now, any takers on who, the first U.S. national team or to make that little square symbol huh. because my money's on Megan Rapinoe. Well, I was going to ask. I was going to say, who do you think? Who do you think is getting carded first for making the VAR sign? That would have been great in that Canada game a few years ago where Wombach kept counting to six. Oh yeah. God! Yeah. The oh that was, wow that game was a disaster. That would have been just oh man. That's true. That 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 whole thing is definitely pre pre VAR shenanigans. No, I was or, like I was like how, at what point do you think Marta is just going to be like on the ground just making yeah. boxes with her hands? Yeah. Yeah, she just the Brazilian players just lay it down in a box. Like that's how much we want you to call this. Right. Um but but yeah, no, I think I I agree with what what John was saying that uh in the idea that, you know, it adds Oh, two things. One thing is, as I agree, it adds gravity. It it, it it lends care to the gravity of the situation. It's a World Cup. It's a very big deal. Um, and I would also say, to a certain extent, um, I wonder if this would have happened if the U.S. hadn't made so much noise about it months ago. Um, you know, Jill Ellis was quoted that, you know, hardline, the tournament should have VAR, and the players backed that up. And I... I, obviously you would like to think that FIFA already had it in the works, but you just wonder maybe if you have, you know, the number one team in the world say you have to have this, um, if that doesn't, you know, push them in the right direction a little bit. Yeah, I, I really do think they were headed in that direction. That's kind of my gut feeling and what, you know, uh, some people have, have indicated online is that it was always going to be that type of thing. Um, like I said, I just wish it hadn't, I don't think it should have come to, Jill Ellis having to speak out about it and the players having to speak out about it. Like this should have been a done deal a long time ago. Mm-hmm. You know, just like, I think we're going to talk about it later, but the, the USSF lawsuit as well. Um, I think there's just, just looking at the last week, like there's been a tone change, at least that, that I feel is palpable um, in regards to these issues of equality that, you know, I, by no means do I mean that it's equal, but I, I feel like things have pushed in a different direction where there's, uh, people are starting to at least realize that there's been these injustices in the past. And I think it's harder publicly um, to make those seem justifiable. And so they're finally starting to fix them and put them where they should be. Yeah, I mean, we can, I don't know if we want to pivot over to that right now, but I definitely think that uh, part of it too is, you know, for better or for worse, this group of U.S. women's national team players 
whether it's that you have some vocal leaders who are perhaps, you know, they're on their last World Cup cycle, so they, you know, they understand the trajectory of, of you know, their time with the team or whatnot, but they are, uh, they, I mean, it, it, you can see in a variety of different ways that some of these players are really very comfortable at this moment speaking out, and I don't know if that's because of the change in leadership in USSF, if maybe it is a little bit more amenable to these conversations, so they feel <clears throat> they feel like they won't be punished uh, for you know taking these very strong stances or, or what exactly. But um, yeah, you're right. Even just in the words used in the yep. conversation, it's changing. Well, and that's kind of like a, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but it's kind of a reflection of sort of where society is right now, where there's a lot of this sort of of talk of this sort of, of change and stance of kind of being like, okay, enough is enough. Like we've, we've gone this far. It's, it's past due and, and I don't care what it takes kind of a thing, but let, let's, let's, as Claire said, let's pivot into that because U S soccer did finally issue a response to the lawsuit by the U S women's national team. Um, and, and one thing in particular I wanted to mention was that in their statement, U S soccer statement said that, at no time since the CBA was was agreed upon a couple of years ago that they've expressed dissatisfaction. And Andrew Doss of the New York Times has just done uh, probably the most reporting on this that I've seen. Uh, pretty much categorically denied that and said yes, they they have expressed dissatisfaction with things. So I thought it was interesting because um, the tone again to go back to the to tone. I thought that the tone of the letter was was kind of like yeah, we're we're going to talk about this. But that particular thing stuck out at me, where they, they pretty much were like, no way. They, they drew a line in the sand. Um, and to, to me, to make that, that kind of a strong statement, despite you know, how the rest of the letter read, was, I think, setting the tone for this argument that's, that's about to come. Because I don't think either side particularly is, is willing to, to be the first one to step up to the negotiating table and back down on some of the things that they want. Well, yeah, I mean, let's, let's talk through this a little bit. So... The, the on International Women's Day, that, that class action lawsuit drops, and then there's no response from U.S. soccer for about a week, which makes me wonder truly if they didn't see it coming. Um, and then it, they have this response now um, as in the form of an open letter from U.S. soccer president Carlos Codero, who... Um, which I thought that specifically was interesting because I think some people pointed out that this is an inherited issue. Um, <clears throat> you know, this goes back to before his time at the head of U.S. soccer, and so I wonder if he specifically felt like he needed to be the face of the Federation side of this uh, since he wasn't involved before. And maybe this is, you know, you have to hope it's in good faith, the idea that maybe um, negotiations can be a little bit more productive this time. Um, but you did, you saw kind of some classic negotiating stuff in that, that letter, you know, he said he was surprised, um, which I think maybe what he meant was he was surprised by the lawsuit, um, not so much surprised by what the lawsuit entailed. Um, and then he also, at the end of it, there was a little bit of, of semantics about, you know, he, he, at the end of the letter, he puts the impetus back on the players to come to the table with U.S. soccer and, and work with them. I think he specifically says something like, we're still figuring out a good time to meet with the players. Something very specific like that, where I think that was a little bit of just kind of twisting the idea that uh, if this doesn't get negotiated out of court, you know, 
it's not just U.S. soccer's fault. It's, you know, the players have to make themselves available to, which you can, you know, each individual person can decide how they feel about that. But uh, I, I thought kind of as a holistic thing, it was an interesting response, but, you know, good. It's good that U.S. soccer wasn't just like, okay, I'll see you in court. So um, we'll see. I don't know. It'll be really interesting to see how it goes from here. Yeah, and I also think I want to point out, you know, what you said about maybe they didn't actually see it coming, but that could also just be a, a head in the sand type of thing. Like I'm not trying to like take sides here, but just because they didn't see it coming doesn't mean that the signs weren't there. They just right. may have deliberately ignored that. Well, right, and I think also um, I'm not an expert on on this, but the the uh, the filing that they had that they had issued. Uh, before the CBA was agreed upon, was expiring. They there was already that open case, the inequality case, and I think that a lot of people think that this lawsuit um, was filed because that one, because of the inactivity on that one. So could I add? Yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm not a lawyer, but I did speak with three specialists in labor law this week. I did some extensive writing on this for another site, but. Um, what I was told was that 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 earlier complaint that you were mentioning, the EEOC complaint, had issued in February a right to sue. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they think the the case is a winnable case or that there's damages, but that they needed to go that route first to then be able to file that complaint in federal court and that they had 90 days to do so from given that right to sue in February so that um, this is, as you mentioned, this is an extension of that, but I don't think it's because of the inactivity per se. It's that they've made, I don't want to call it an adjudication because I don't think that's a, technically what it is, but that they had decided that the players could now take this to federal court. Right. Yeah. And, but okay. it's an old, you're right. This is, this is stemming from 2016, um, coming before the Olympics. Yeah, so uh, it'll. I wonder. I don't know what's going to happen. I think likely. Um, I, I think it's unlikely this goes to court. Um, but it could be a similar. I don't. I don't know exactly though either because the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association isn't involved. I don't know who those players represent. Those specific players in the lawsuit, who their representation is, and what they're being advised to do. Um, also, you just have this issue now where. Um, this is an this is a class case where it is just these players and they're busy. They have a lot going on right now. They're getting back with their clubs. You know they're rolling into this World Cup cycle. I yeah. I and I don't I don't know exactly where this goes from here. Yeah, I'm not sure anyone really does, but it it's certain to get uh, far more interesting than it is already. Um, all right, so we will come back uh, in a few and we'll talk about the NWSL. Welcome back to episode 51 of the Equalizer podcast. Claire, Chelsea, and John here to talk all things WOSO. Um, we are going to talk a little bit about the NWSL preseason. Before we get into that, I do want to mention that 
um, this morning, central time in the U.S., uh, a European club record for attendance at a women's soccer match was set at 60,739 for Atletico Madrid versus Barcelona, which, because Twitter keeps telling me that no one cares about women's soccer, it's very confusing, but I'm thrilled to see it. Um, that 60,000 is insane. That's that's kind of on par with even what, you know, MLS gets in this in the U.S., um, much, you know, much less uh, in WSL. So I would I I would love to see that spread, not just in the U.S., but through Europe, you know, Australia, Africa, South America, Asia, everywhere. I think 60,000 is, is fantastic. And I can't wait until that's not a great number. That's just standard. Uh, so I wanted to mention that. And we are officially in NWSL preseason. Um, most of the players are with their clubs. Obviously, there are some individual circumstances where they're not. Um, teams have been, a couple teams have played some college matches. We have the, the Portland Inv- Invitational, which you'll hear a lot more about next week since both John and Claire will be there. Um, Houston's made a couple of signings recently, uh, Aero Romero and Sophie Schmidt, the, the two notable ones. Uh, Schmidt in particular, I think I'm pretty excited about just to see her back in the league. She's a player I've liked for a long time, and I think that she fills a particular need um, kind of in a, a very was a very weak midfield last season. It's kind of always been an issue for, for Houston. We look a lot about at their defense, but I think if you go back and you, you look at their midfield, and I think a lot of their problems start and stop in, in that area. So just to see them be able to take control of a match could really kind of change things for them. Um, but I, they've been doing well in their preseason as of, you know, most, most teams tend to do pretty well in preseason because they're playing college teams, although not, not always. I think it was, uh, I think it was sky blue last year that kind of struggled in preseason, which was, uh, maybe a sign of things to come that we didn't really pick up on. Um, other than that, anything else notable from preseason that you guys have, have jumped out at you yet from, from rosters? Take that as a no. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to think. Um, like one thing I like about preseason rosters is you always see random names pop up like Jemiah Fields with the dash. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you see these these names kind of move around. You know, um, Sammy Joe Prudhomme has left the dash. She was their third keeper last year and was kind of in line to, to continue that as a rostered player this year. Left the dash and is now trialing with Washington, trying to, to get on their roster to hopefully – get some actual playing time, although that probably, I would say, hard to come by unless uh, something happens to Aubrey Bledsoe. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting, it's an interesting year if you're a goalkeeper. If you can sneak your way onto a roster, there's a definite possibility if, uh, um, you know, obviously you're probably trying to get onto one where you have players leaving for the World Cup, but um, yeah, there's a little bit more room for keepers. Even just, you know, you have teams that are signing third keepers this this year because uh, because of the international tournaments. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to tell. I mean, we were chatting about this a little bit right before we started this segment. Um, I think you're going to see international players, uh, both for the U.S. and elsewhere, kind of sliding in and out of preseason. They might be available for one game and unavailable for another, and um, you know, we are getting to that point where I don't know, I don't know exactly how, you know, much chemistry any team's going to be able to, uh, to get together, especially ha- if they do have a lot of 
national team players, um, which I know in in uh, in Chicago, Rory James always says, you know, in one NWSL season, you have maybe three preseasons. You know, you have your first preseason, and then you have your preseason when you get your national team players, and then you have probably a second preseason halfway through the season after, you know, the, the break. And um, I just think this is the first one. <laughs> Yeah, it's pr- this is it's such a brutal year for coaches, you know, because as you mentioned, you you start your year without your national teamers, then they come in for then they're going to leave after a week, then they're going to come back for the start of the games, then they're going to be gone for, you know, 6 7 weeks maybe over the World Cup break. Um and you have to prepare, you know, all these three different game plans, you know, to come in and um that takes a lot of preparation, a lot of forethought. I think you're going to see which coaches are organized this year um, because this is, this is one of those years where the coaches who've looked ahead and thought, how are we going to handle this? How are we going to handle, you know, this player's absence um, are really going to be an advantage over those coaches who kind of just play it by ear, I think. Yeah. Cause you've always in the past, it's always kind of struck me. You always have some coaches who kind of use that as, as an excuse. Well, you know, I didn't have these, these players or, you know, right. they're always coming in and out and, but that that thing happens to every single team. Like, there's not a single team that doesn't have international players, be they U.S. or other ones. And so, it it is as an excuse. It's something you have to deal with. It's unfortunate. And I think I speak for everyone. I say I wish it didn't disrupt the NWSL as much as it does. You know, even in a non uh, tournament year. But it is one of those things. And, those are and, you know, <laughs> those are like the coaches who. Remember how many times their team hit the crossbar, but forget how many times the other team hit the crossbar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's it's all equal in the end. Or complain about the field like conditions or the weather, not really. The no. field conditions right. is a good one, yeah. Like, you were playing on the same field, bro. Uh, yeah, I, um, like I said, I know you, you guys are, are heading to Portland to watch their preseason. I may or may not drive down to watch the Dash play Texas A&M next weekend. I haven't made my mind on that. Um, mostly just because I want to go to College Station, go back to College Station. It's always a fun time. But um, just from what I've, I've seen kind of on Twitter and, and talked to some people who were there, um, it, you know, it's been a lot of, of trial lists mostly, which as you know, as you can expect, the coaches, right? The coaches know what they can expect from their veterans. It's more about figuring, you know, who's going to make those final rosters. Because even with the roster increase, that's still uh, – that's still a lot of in camp that aren't going to make it. But I do think, I believe, and correct me if, on this if I'm wrong, guys, but doesn't the the new uh, like roster update have to be cut down tomorrow? Is that when the new preseason roster comes out? Yeah, it's like a smaller number, right? It's right, it's yeah, bigger than normal number, but a smaller number than what most. Yeah, it's not the final, are. you know, twenty-two or however, but right. It just means that you can't have you know thirty-four people on your preseason roster. Yeah, which hey, you know, not all, like Orlando's had what twenty five, uh, which is a little bit concerning to me for Orlando's sake, because um, a lot of those twenty five are, are going to be missing a lot of time. So it's kind of like where exactly are they planning? Maybe they're planning on scooping up some of these leftover draftees and trialists at other teams later on, or maybe that's just a reflection of of uh, Mark Sanders, you know, not being with the. the the team very long, but I think that was one that really jumped out at me is that's a, that's a pretty low number for preseason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially this year. Yeah. 
Um, but, you know, not a whole lot more to talk about that. But we do have a lot of questions, even though we um, may or may not have forgotten to tweet out the... <laughs> yeah, maybe this is maybe this is the way we should just do it. For now. I know, I know. <laughs> so uh, coming back, we will tackle your questions. All right, welcome back to episode 51 of the Equalizer podcast. Uh, we, despite tweeting out the leak, link or the tweet rather late, we have a lot of questions. Um, Mitch Fowler says, how excited is everyone for the NBSL season just to get started already? Um, like, super duper excited. <laughs> so we can have something more to talk about. Um, <laughs> Exo Woso wants to know, have you heard from coaches why offseason was so quiet? Was there hesitancy for signings with World Cup or expected 2020 expansion? Or was it the coaching changes? I have not personally talked to any coaches about this yet. Um, I do think the coaching changes played played a bit of a role into it. The later a coach arrives at a, a club, the the less time they have to get to know their squad, particularly when it's the off season. Anything um, from you, Claire, on that? Uh, no. I, <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, not don't have a lot to add there. John, you. I just think some some of it or maybe a lot of it is driven by the national team players, too. And I don't think, you know, there was the same type of desire to move this year that there was last year. So I think that stemmed some of the the movement, you know, of, of ancillary players as well. Yeah. And I mean, I'll, I'll maybe say the thing that I've said before, which is just um, I think a lot of the teams as of right now, the the top end of the league teams uh, feel very strongly in kind of developing what they already have. And I yeah. think you just see more of that now than uh, making big moves. Okay. Uh, I am that Sam. I am. I kind of proud of myself for getting through that. not going to lie. Says I'm sure y'all will do predictions for the NWSL season later on, but I'm just feeling impatient. Any you want to share right now uh, that is correct. I'm sure we'll talk much more in depth about predictions later. I think you're going to see, some of these historical trends continue. Some of the teams that have been good recently are going to continue to be good. Some of the teams that have struggled, like like Washington, I see them still struggling. I don't see a ton of movement um, from the table as it stood last year. Uh, either of you challenge that notion? I think Houston has a chance to push into the top four. Yeah, that, that's, that's my thing, too. I agree. The stability of their roster combined with how close they were last year combined with a coach who at least, you know, um, secondhand I've heard is, has injected a lot of energy into the team. Um, and the fact that they're not going to lose a lot of players during the world cup sets them up very well, Mm -hmm. um, to push on a little bit higher this year. I do think it'll take a drop off from one of the top four teams, but I also think that, um, you look at a team like Seattle, they have some depth issues right now. So, um, I don't know. You you have a couple things go wrong. You have someone get hurt. You could definitely see one of those top four teams dropping down. And I think that the Dash are, are right there to, to push forward. And I wonder yeah. how Portland is going to deal with, I mean, losing Haran and mm-hmm. Heath, probably French and Sinclair. I mean, that they're going to have a huge, and Sonnet, they're going to have huge gaps yep. this year. Yeah, and that's kind of my thing, too, is, is I'm not sure any of the, the top teams are going to drop so much that another team could could sneak in there. Um, North Carolina is going to lose a, a huge number of very key players as well. Although they've kind of demonstrated in the past that it 
doesn't kind of seem to matter who they have. They kind of keep chugging along. Um, Exowoso also asks, is there any issue if an NWSL team provided an inaccurate preseason roster? Or is the roster just a courtesy? Um, I, first of all, I'd be curious to know who was, was inaccurate because I didn't, uh, didn't pick up on that. And just because someone is listed on the roster and not in camp right now does not mean they shouldn't be on the roster. That's, that's not, to my understanding, I think that if, if a player is going to be you know, considered for a roster spot, they have to be on this preseason roster unless it's a signing that comes later. Am I wrong? No, I think that's right. And I think also you don't want to confuse uh, someone training with a team as being on their preseason roster. So um, a lot of teams, yes. you know, they'll have point. they'll have college students train with them. They'll have their development academy players train with them. That's pretty normal. So um, if you see someone training with a team, but they're not on the preseason roster, both of those, th- those are not mutually exclusive things um, that both of those things could be true. Yeah. And I don't think the teams can kind of sneak players in, um, you know, where they're, they're training and suddenly they're going to be assigning. It just doesn't really, really work like that. Um, Jordan Staub has a couple questions. Do you think Nike will follow Adidas and pay the same bonus amounts to their female athletes? God, I hope so. Uh, any one of you, either one? You know, I, I was looking at some of the financial statements yesterday um, and noticed that even in U.S. soccer's filing, there are references to the Nike bonuses and that inequality. Um, it really doesn't jive with Nike's marketing as of late. Um, so that's I, I don't know whether it's going to happen, but I think that's a fascinating question because you're, you're out there publicly promoting this idea of equality. And not only are you in a situation where your bonuses aren't equal, at least right now, but you're, you're seriously um, limiting, in my opinion, your jersey sales when you're not providing certain models in men's sizes. Yeah, I mean, uh, Australia sold out right away of yeah. all of their men's size jerseys. The demand is there. It's silly. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, Jordan also says, do you think Pew's game has dropped or was she overrated to begin with? Why do you think Short isn't seeing any time? Um, I, I've written quite a bit about and been pretty vocal about my opinion of Mallory Pugh. I don't think she was necessarily overrated. I think that with any young player that comes in, they're very exciting and that gives them a boost. We, we've talked on this pod a bit about how she's not gotten, between Ellis and, and Jim Gabar, not gotten the best development. I do think that... Her game is a little bit one-dimensional, and I think she needs to work on her back-to-goal and her hold-up play and things like that. And I just think that the, the the game has evolved. The U.S. game in particular, the way they play soccer right now, has kind of evolved beyond her a little bit. And she's just, frankly, not playing as well as Tobin Heath or Megan Rapinoe. So she's not going to be challenging them for those spots. I think that the the center-mid experiment was does not play to her strong suits. And so she was kind of set up for failure. And that, and, and and so I think a combination of of that of not getting the good development and not really having a game well suited has kind of kind of made her struggle a little bit. Uh, Casey Short seeing any time it, it, it's like Sam Lewis. I don't know why Casey Short doesn't get to play. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say Mallory Pugh is only overrated in that I don't understand why she's starting every game for the U.S. But um, that doesn't also necessarily overrated is a terrible term. I hate it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think Claire, maybe you had mentioned 
a few weeks ago too about her club situation perhaps affecting her form. Right. Just she's had no chance to develop. She hasn't had consistent quality coaching for a very long time. Um, and it's unfortunate because you would think that that's why she jumped to club in the first place. Uh, yeah. And to not get that kind of support, it does. It, it it affects your trajectory as a player. Yeah, it's it's very ironic and unfortunate. Um, one last from Jordan. I see a lot of people complain about Press not starting when she has been one of the top players in the last few games. My opinion is that she is an awesome sub, and I think she plays better coming into the game than she does when she starts a game. What do you all think? Um, John, I'm going to put you on the spot because I think you've watched the most of Chris press than any of us you know i would agree with the the question and I, I realize that some people might not be happy with that but her ability to change pace i think is probably more effective later in the game when you know an outside back's legs are maybe a little more tired um so yeah or you you know I, and honestly i really don't think it matters because on her day she's obviously just as good as as heath and rapino um I, my opinion and this is one that I've come to grudgingly because, as I've mentioned before, I'm not a huge fan of squad rotation, is I don't know why you don't just rotate the three of those through the entire tournament this summer. Because they're all they're all 30. Um, you know, their, their legs aren't what they used to be. You're playing a compressed schedule. Why not play Heath and Rapino one game, Heath and Press the next game, Rapino and Press the third game, and then go back to Heath and Rapino and just repeat that cycle you know, through the tournament. And you could do that with your center midfielders and you could probably do it with your outside backs as well because the U.S. has the depth. Um, why not use it? Well, there you go. Uh, Caroline Slade says, any idea about the status of Raquel Rodriguez with Sky Blue? She's on the roster, but it doesn't look like she's training with the team and seems like she wasn't at the preseason game yesterday. Kind of touched on this already. That doesn't really mean anything uh, quite yet. Other than just, you know, Sky Blue still has her rights, and if there's news, there'll be news, but yeah. there isn't any yet. Yeah. Um, John Forsyth says, what's it going to take for Nike and U.S. soccer to stop their gender expectations for kits um, regarding men's cut U.S. women's national team three-star kits? Uh, John, since you kind of took the Nike helm earlier, what do you think about this one? You know, I don't know what it's going to take. I mean, you would think that, you know, as a company, which ideally is man, uh, maximizing its revenue, that they would see that there's a, a lost opportunity here. Um, I can tell you, having um, spoken to some people who know, that this decision was a Nike decision and not a U.S. soccer decision. So... Um, they are the ones deciding not to do this. And this is, listen, this is no different than 2016. I think uh, most of us will remember that right after the 2015 World Cup, when the women earned that third star, that Nike had originally not provided it, then they provided it, then they canceled orders when people had custom ordered it. Um, so they're, you know, in men's sizes. So there were, this is not a new issue and I don't know what they're thinking is because to me, it just seems like a bad business decision. It is. I think, um, Jen Cooper of Keeper Notes can back, back us up on that. She used to work for a retailer and would provide some of those custom things that, that you weren't able to get. I bought several jerseys from her and the demand is absolutely there. So why Nike doesn't just shut up and take our money? Nobody seems to know. It's wild to um, me that no man can have a U.S. Women's National Team jersey. <laughs> That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, and not even, not even just men, though. Like, the women's That's true. are not yeah. flattering. That's, you're so right. You know what? You're absolutely correct. Uh, women's cuts are terrible anyway. So, um, yeah. 
back to I am that Sam I am. Has there ever been any reporting surrounding on the border of the U.S. women's national team players? There's an enormous financial difference for allocated versus non-allocated, and I got to think that causes tensions. Uh, there, there certainly has been some reporting on on the difference between allocated and non-allocated. Uh, any tensions? You know, I don't think you're going to get players to to spend a whole lot of time on record saying, "Yeah, she makes twice as three times as much money as I do, and it really sucks." But they acknowledge that it's there. Um, Claire, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe a different way to answer the question is is less about your relationship, the bubble players' relationship to um, the, the allocated players, and more, um, I think some people who uh, were on the U.S. Women's National Team bubble of the last cycle, uh, who maybe are no longer in the game, I'm thinking specifically Keelan Winters, I think, has said this, um, that it's an added stress, more, less about your co- the competition with the other players, and more about not knowing how much you're going to get paid. Um, in a certain calendar year or certain season. Um, the difference between making the roster and not making the roster is an incredible amount of money for a women's soccer player. And um, that is a, that is a stress, and it affects your game. It's a mental aspect. You know, if you think about um, it's one thing on its own, you know, making a roster or not making a roster, but if that's the difference between really making a living uh, one year and, and barely being able to do so that gets into your head. So I think that if the negatives there have less to do with, um, have less to do with the relationship between the players and more just players' relationships with their own kind of well-being. You know, and the, the people on the player side of this acknowledge that this, this is an issue too. And they, you know, even, even they think that as we move probably to collective bargaining agreements from now, that this, this will, change um because there's a lot of problems with it listen um we had a piece on equalizer a few weeks ago about the allocations and the problems between being number 22 and number 23 you know because you're going from about $160,000 a year to $40,000 a year that's going to create a huge lifestyle change one way or another and it's not just always good because then when players lose that allocation there's a major impact coming back the other direction so um, this is something that needs to be fixed at some point. You know, it's just the, this is what the players want right now in terms of the structure. And, and so this is where we're at. Right. And the obvious, the obvious argument is I think probably in a perfect world, uh, a club contract would be more than, you know, $47,000, you know, max. Um, yeah. So that drop off wouldn't be quite so steep. Yeah. I think that's kind of what we're all looking forward to. And then you can, once clubs can afford to to pay their all of their players, you know, a substantial amount, um, and not have to deal with these these contracts like they are, that that that'll be all for the good. I can't imagine being someone like Tierna Davidson to to potentially go into World Cup and, and almost certainly play at least some time in that World Cup, and to look over at the bench and see, um, to be honest, someone like Ashlyn Harris or Adriana Franchus more than likely not going to see a single minute in the world cup making so much more money that to me that that's a great injustice and that has to be frustrating. Um, one final question, um, kind of, we've answered a question like this before, but I'll I'll go for it anyway. John Forsyth wants to kind of know about our backgrounds. Uh, did you take journalism in school or college? What got you into WOSA to begin with? Do you have non-journal day jobs? So Claire, why don't you start us off? Oh, well, I mean, 
we've been going for about 15 minutes, so I'll keep this short, but, uh, yeah, I do have, I have non, I have a non-writing day job, um, I do not have a journalistic background, and, uh, uh, yeah, I think the thing that gets you into it is, um, there's, uh, some, or at least, certainly at least when I started, and I think even probably more so when you two did, is there, uh, hasn't been, there's so much more quality writing now than uh, there was maybe, you know, four or five, six years ago. Um, and part of that is because you, there are people who don't necessarily, um, you know, have that as their job who jump in and have good things to say. So, John, what about you? Um, I don't have a journalism degree, but I did write um, for the largest college daily in the country. Um, back a long, long time ago. Um, I do kind of joke that uh, I was lucky that when I graduated was right when the newspaper industry was dying um, because my job offers were all in very undesirable markets. So I, I did pursue a different uh, full-time career, but it leaves me with a lot of free time to do this, which uh, I enjoy incredibly. Um, I don't know what got me into well, so I think I've always kind of been into both. I mean, obviously the national teams, I think is what drew me in, but it was equal for men's and women's. I followed both teams um, very closely for many, many years, uh, even before I started writing about soccer specifically. All right. I actually, I studied journalism for three years in college, my first three years, then I had to, to change schools uh, because of a life event and on a whim changed my major for, for reasons that I no longer understand or know, but it's <laughs> what happened. Um, I do have a day job. I'm, I work for a commercial financing company. I'm a credit analyst. It's incredibly exciting. Um, what got you into WOSA to begin with? Uh, when I was a wee lass, I saw the 96 Olympics and I thought Mia Hamm hung the moon and it just kind of has been with me for the last, you know, 20, 20 years. So, all right, long question session, but that's always fun and good. So I'm going to thank everyone for listening. Uh, This has been episode 51 of the Equalizer podcast of Chelsea Bush, Claire Watkins, and John Halloran. And we all thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Equalizer podcast. The views and opinions expressed are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent those of Equalizer soccer. We thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.